Welcome back to Potter's Pockets, episode 21, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, chapters 19 through 22. The Servant of Lord Voldemort, The Dementious Kiss, Hermione's Secret, and the Owl Post again. And back with me are my two esteemed colleagues, Ms. Sarah Miller and Mr. Russell Chance. Welcome back, you two. It's good to be back. News. Hello. And it's good to have you back. Um, now on this professional version of the Zoom recording software that we are now investing in, Oh, wait, what does that mean? Oh, well, so it's 15 bucks a month. And what was really interesting about initially, you know, putting money into it, besides the fact that, you know, always having to invest in both you, Wes, personally, and your podcast, which I'm now doing, but also just in the time I spend with y'all. Um, but um, it was interesting because when I was first purchasing the software, it was like, okay, well, $140 and save $30 if you do this for a year. And I thought, well, that would be a wonderful thing to try and get the listeners to fund. If, if they wanted us to do that sort of thing, if we could raise like $140, then we could get the yearly plan. I can just keep going monthly and tell them, but I thought that that would be an interesting idea, if not now, at some point. Um, just because... It seems like people like to fund good things, and especially if they know directly where their money is going to. And so that would be, I think, an interesting idea. I like it. Sounds good. Fundraiser. We're like NPR up in here now. And, uh, Selling cookies at the supermarket. <laughs> yeah, we so. have, this is our baked sale. Yeah. yeah, okay. <laughs> we have, we'd have to... I was just going to say, we'd have to think about the mechanism through which we solicit resources. Um, just, just FYI, which is something we can, we can slack about this. But. Yeah, look at us all professional. Yeah, now using Slack, <laughs> sort of meeting software, having a professional uh, audio software. We are slowly Ooh. growing the endeavor. Our, our, we're acqui acquiring owls as we go. And... Uh, <laughs> and capacity and perhaps our patroni are becoming more more defined all along as we try to shed light or at least cast a little bit of light in the darkness that surrounds mm -hmm. us yes uh, the forbidden forest that eternally surrounds us okay so we had some questions about today and so it seemed like in our pre-show what we were focusing on is the theme of time and repetition and specifically how the last two chapters sort of repeat and how the last chapter specifically is a repetition of the first chapter. And Sarah, you made a point about, actually, what was the other point you made? You made a, a, a point about another parallel between two chapters, between uh, Marge's mistake and Hermione's secret. There it was. And mm -hmm. uh, so did we want to start with time and repetition, you two? Yeah, I, I always found the time turner to be really, really interesting and partly because what it does is um, like opens up this, this whole new possibility, which is what's so cool about fantasy in the first place, right? Like here's a new idea and look what it does when you, when you have this in the world. Um, and for her to just spring this one on us at the very end of the book is, uh, is such a, a awesome move. I thought um, I always loved the end of this book and that's part of why I like this book. I think the best out of all of them still, but we'll see how, how that changes as we go along here and reread more. Whoa, that's a that's a bold claim, Wes, that this one was your favorite. 
Yeah, I think so. I, I, I really like one and I like two. Okay. Uh, three, there's, there's all of the good things about one and two. And then there's just like more, you know, there's like a little hint of what's to come. And then there's just more of that wonder and that, that, uh, like see this new thing and, um, and watch what happens. Uh, and literally, right. Like watch yourself out there. Um, seeing yourself casting the spell that saves your life. It's like, it's awesome uh, to just think about and you can kind of go around and around with it. And it seems to me infinite actually. Yeah. And I want to ask you whether another element of this that I, and I do want to ask you what you really love about this because I really love this one too, but something that really appealed to me when I first read it was the idea of getting away from the Dursleys and going to uncle Sirius's. I know he's a godfather, but like, the, the idea of that sort of loving relationship with like a sort of paternal-esque figure uh, who actually cares for you and will do like fun things with you and teach you cool stuff, uh, that really added a lot to my understanding of it. And I, I was wondering whether you thought that the Patronus of Harry was a reflection of the fact that he was starting to get a, a good idea of who his father was through his friends and enemies through Snape's account of him, through Dumbledore's account of him, through, or well, I guess he gets that later, through Lupin's sort of account of him, and of course through Sirius's and Peter's account of him, that he starts to sort of understand the image of the father better so that he can embody it himself. And I don't know, something about that uh, appealed to me. Also, I wanted to mention, you see Hermione beating Hermione again, figuring something out before everybody else and not sharing it with them until way later. Typical Hermione stuff, being way ahead of the curve. Um, but yeah, not to not to jar my first point, but just to add that in. Um, no, yeah, I I I loved listening and watching her ask questions of Professor Lupin and Mister Black, um, and she does so. I think the narrator describes her as timid, um, and yet she asks anyway asks questions that we need answered but Ron and Harry are for various reasons either physically or emotionally unable to ask or unwilling to ask but um yes she knew about the time turner but I just thought she was so gracious under pressure um like she she was so cool and brave to to talk to serious black um and ask ask really useful questions um in the in the servant of lord voldemort chapter is what i meant um and yet it was funny she wasn't able she was unable to learn the patroness uh charm just by listening to harry she couldn't do it um she was scared of the hippogriff um of flying on buckbeak and yeah, I, I just thought that was an interesting ju- juxtaposition. Like, and had trouble with the that I wanted to throw out there. What's What's interesting is you just reminded me that it's interesting to what extent a hero's dragon differs for each hero, and how Hermione her mm-hmm. is disappointing McGonagall, is disappointing somebody's expectations, and so mm-hmm. insofar she's been even using this time turner to do more work than is possible for a normal human. She uh she has been facing her fears like kind of full out 
this uh, this term. She has been facing the idea that she might disappear yeah. somebody. And um, well, I just thought that was interesting that, that that only really starts to come out when we do use the time turner at the end and realize just how much strain she has been under and what heights she has been striving towards and what she's been able to maintain, frankly speaking, during that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, studying to help uh, Hagrid with this trial with Buckbeak and even still wanting to be friends with Harry and Ron, though I, I'm not sure exactly what they, they offer beyond companionship and so I suppose adventure. <laughs> and mischievousness, but not a lot of, like, uh, traditionally speaking, good things for a school. Uh, <laughs> um, I guess she does have, a, she, she likes fun, you know? And, uh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just wanted to say those things. But do, so you were suggesting, Alex, that he sees his father in, through the information he gains from other people like Snape and Lupin and Sirius do you think that explains why he's able I'm I'm very confused as to why he sees himself conjure the Patronus and I had a very crazy conspiracy theory but I don't think it's totally borne out by the text um well we gotta hear it but I thought it was maybe Snape um <laughs> Because he's at the lake, he's the one who brings them all up. To, so he like, he's the one who brings them all up to the castle. Um, and we know that his Patronus is a doe. So it's small enough, or it's a similar shape that I think it could be mistaken. Um, and and that it it would have cause to pet. I don't know if I if I'm if that if that works with the geography of the way that it's the lake is described but um i guess i just wondered and then i wondered if it was possible how how it could be his father or how it could be him and he didn't recognize because if it is him then doesn't that mean that like they're on like they were always meant to go back in time in which case i i guess i get into this like infinite loop of time that I that like really makes my brain spin and well, then I, do, I have to I stop think, thinking about it. I do think that's rough, the infinite loop. I think symbolically it works in that Harry embodies the image of the father that he did not expect. He thought it was external, but it was actually internal. He how how the father comes to be is like you don't wait for the father to come. You start embodying the role of the father. Mm -hmm. Um you know, which is what I would say we're trying to do with, you know, being masters of arts. Again, you know, if you don't see the role being embodied, just go embody it yourself. And I do think that that's actually the idea behind America, which is a radical one. Um, but um, yes, uh, but yeah, so uh, instead of getting into the infinite regress idea of like, uh, when is time happening? And how many times has this happened? And will it ever stop? It makes me think that part of what this time turner is suggesting to us is sort of like what the movies like Groundhog Day do and that Tom Cruise sort of war movie where he has to relive the same day over and over again. Um, mm -hmm. sort of what life is, is an iterating pattern of days that mostly look alike with slight differences as you like 
slightly scale up in skill up a mountain in like a purgatorial or Dante way. And as if uh, Hermione is starting to master this concept and is, is deriving additional sort of exponential benefit from it. Like she takes like, what, twice as many courses as everybody or 33% more. It's like she's, she's experiencing an appreciation of capital on her natural gifts because of uh, what she's doing. And it just strikes me that um, I suppose you can read the time turner in a hellish way like you did, like an infinite repetition without change does seem to be Dante's idea of hell and does seem to be very hellish. Um, uh, yeah. I, and, um, but I think the purgatorial view of it is sort of like that, that, and maybe this isn't supported, but I'm not sure, but that, uh, what life is, is sort of a series. And like I said, of reflecting days that are all pretty similar to each other with a slight arc upwards, or maybe even sort of a, a sort of vacillating or like sort of sine cosine structure, like wave like structure with hopefully the waves tending upwards near the end or something like that. Hmm. Um, yeah. Wes, what do you think? I think about it uh, like usual in terms of, you know, reading and stuff like that. Well, it's like, you know, every time you open the book, you, you relive the experience of the book, but, but you never um, are the same person that you were the last time you read the book, you know? So it's like, in, in a sense, yes, they're, they're in a circle because he's come back to save himself who lives on to save himself by going back to save himself. Right. So it's like, that is, that is a thing going on, but it's also within the, the narrative and the way that it's revealed within the narrative, you're, you're moving uh, towards um, that future, which I think Alex, you pointed to as another great thing about the end of this book, right? That Harry has that glimpse of hope of getting out of the Dursley's household uh, being reunited with this person that was taken from him um, and very, very much like his father uh, and, and mother in that way. Um, that hope is, of course, dashed, but, but not, in a, not, in a, not in a totally tragic way, right? Because he's the one who then rescues Sirius, right? He rescues, the, uh, he rescues Buckbeak and then with Buckbeak rescues Sirius. It's, it's a kind of um, picture, I guess, of, of that same circle. Uh, going on, um, but one which is moving uh, ahead and moving through um, a, a story which has some kind of intention and which conveys some kind of message um, uh, aside from like simple recurrence or, or stasis um, and paralysis maybe even, right? So it's like that, I, I saw that with, um, <laughs> with Snape, the way that his body is like knocked out, but still like being moved along. Like that's a distorted kind of creepy version, I guess. So, and the word that I think the adjective creepy is used multiple times for him, uh, for the way he moves um, when he's being mobile corpused by uh, Sirius. It, it's 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 like that's a. I, I suppose the Dementors as well are are like that too, right? They sort of they suck energy in, but don't um, generate anything. You know, so there's like these negative versions of it and there's obviously uh this kind of mixed ending to this book where you you on the one hand have saved lives and um you've rescued 
the prisoner, you know, but on the other hand, uh, you, you're kind of caught in the same thing. You're going back to the Dursley's house again, you know, around four coming up. Um, it, it's very interesting to me how, how those variations are uh, established within the narrative. Yeah, and I wonder to what extent do either of you think that the repetition at the end of the book is supposed to be indicative of the repetition of the opportunity for Harry to have a family? That, um, and, and also observing sort of Harry as a repetition of James and how things are going to be slightly different, different this time around. And, and, oh man, there really is a strong theme of like sameness and difference in the repetition and the patterns of time, right? And, um, because now it's so similar to the past with Harry saving Sirius again, just like James saved Sirius. And then Sirius, like a buddy, can get him back by giving him permission to go to Hogsmeade. But there's sort of a weird sort of Freudian-like mistake in there too, right? Like, Sarah, something you mentioned earlier about Lupin palling around with Harry is that, you know, he's a teacher, Harry's a student. They shouldn't be acting like friends. It's sort of the same with Sirius. Like, Sirius is a, the guardian of Harry, like the father, not the, not the like, trading just jokes and uh you know uh sort sort of favors friends um and i don't know add in there i'm not i'm not sure exactly what the firebolt is doing in there too that does strike me as like the perfect like uncle rich uncle gift but i also don't know if that's exactly a good move as a guardian um so i guess i'm asking about the the repetitions and the inversions and the changes and um, to what extent Sirius is missing the mark as a, a potential guardian, or, or to what extent he was always sort of a will-o'-the-wisp guardian, that he would not have ever been an appropriate guardian for Harry, even though he seemed like he would be perfect. That's yeah, good... I mean, oh, go for it, Wes, sorry. No, no, you. No, I was, um, I understand that, you know, he's been in Azkaban for 13 years for a crime he didn't commit and whatnot, but I do think it's interesting that moment in the Shrieking Shack where he and Lupin um, are ready to kill Peter, and Harry is the one who says no and posits that the Dementor's kiss would be a better punishment. He wants to make it clear to Peter that he's not doing this out of pity um but he says i don't think my father would want to would have wanted his two best friends to become killers and you know like you said that's that's a real inversion of role um the being led by your emotions by your gut by um kind of without without letting that letting that logo check you um is something that seems childlike and we've, we've talked previously about how childlike Harry and Ron in particular seem in uh in this book you know everything from fighting with Hermione over a broomstick to their you know back talk defiance of a, of a teacher and even Hermione's got her childish moments so I would just chalk it up to sleep deprivation but <laughs> um but but to, the way that they go about 
uh, the, the different kinds of actions that they take in the Shrieking Shack, um, Hermione's cool and composed interrogation, um, uh, Ron, Ron willingly tying himself to Peter Pettigrew. I think, Wes, you noted his, his courage and his willingness to kind of work through the pain. Um, and Harry, Harry uh, effectively protects Peter and later feels like it's going to be his fault that Voldemort comes back if Peter is the one to help him as a consequence. And I, I just think that's a significant departure from a what we've seen of them thus far, but also um, like if anybody in that room should have been the head of reason, it should have been Professor Lupin um, in my book, but he wasn't. And I think that that is, I don't know, that's something I feel is that sometimes back in a high school, I definitely experience like the reversion to the mean, you know, like uh, the temptation to behave like the environment in which you are existing. I don't know that Sirius would have been a good father figure. It might've been a fun father figure. Um, but like, can you really see him telling Harry to do his homework? No. Can you see him punishing him for, um, bad behavior, which we know he's capable of? No. Um, no, no. Is that where you were kind of going with that, Alex? I don't know. Yeah, no. And, you know, he was riding a motorcycle. He's like a super Uncle Jesse from Full House figure. He just he strikes <laughs> me as exactly what a young teenage starting to be rebellious boy would want his father to be, right? Uh, like, which is exactly yeah. why, which is exactly why kids don't get to pick who their parents are, right? I mean, among many other reasons, but that's why it's good that like your parents, it, that's why conflict with parents can be so valuable. Like teenagers pushing against their parents, if their parents were just the cool kids who were just, who just wanted to be friends with the parent, with the kid. I mean, I mean, gosh, I see that all the time in parents of, of former students like well you know they're gonna drink somewhere so they might as well drink in my basement like like first of all in certain states that's gonna get you arrested as a parent for like <laughs> reckless endangerment second of all like that's not your job right um and yeah he seems like he'd be cool but i don't think he'd be that doesn't mean that doesn't make it good you know yeah i I really like that that question about versus what's cool is one that um, I feel like richer is essential for like delving into. Can you say more? What do you mean? What? Did I lose what? Back on. Yeah, I want to hear that question. Okay. It sounded very interesting. No, yeah, I just yeah. Well, the 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 character of Sirius Black being this kind of ineffable, um, unattainable thing, you know, that he's he's out there, but you can't know quite where he is, and you, he'll sort of contact you by outpost um, once in a while, but he so he he really fits into that kind of romantic ideal, I, I think, um, which is an ideal because you can't ever quite realize it, you know? And 
there's something um, very inspiring about that, but also not very practical uh, and, and frankly, really dangerous, right? Because as he points out, you know, he as good as killed Harry's parents. He did persuade them and they listened to him, right? Because he's serious black. I mean, what a, what a mercurial, what a brilliant idea to, to have Peter Pettigrew, who no one would expect, right? Be the secret keeper instead of serious. So he, He, yeah, yeah. So, um, he he's kind of telling the story for a lot of these um, eighteen, nineteen uh, chapters here. Uh, chapters eighteen and nineteen. That is, he's he's sort of like, with help from Hermione's questions, um, filling in some of that stuff that's going on in the background that he sort of represented. Um, but he also can't possibly. Um, I guess he can't really undo the damage that he's done. And I think this goes to your point, right? Like there, there has to be a new embodiment of, uh, of those potential things that were, that were mistakes, um, to correct them. You can't, you can't go back and, um, actually undo something. You can only sort of like, uh, return and, and try to, um, elaborate what was there already, right? Like unfold what was, um, what was there. I think that's kind of what Harry's doing with saving Pettigrew, right? Like he's, he's um, not able to bring his parents back, but he is able to save someone's life. You know, Pettigrew is one, Buckbeat's another, and, and Black's a third, I suppose. Yeah, it's like he's reversing the path of Cain, like improving the chain of fate in that respect and sort of editing editing this iteration for the better, improving on his parents' example, because it does sound over and over again from the examples we get about James that Harry is a better guy than James. Like from the, the, the view we'll eventually get, James and Sirius are sort of Weasley-like, but sort of in a dark and sort of malevolent way. Uh, and Harry, Harry seems, you know, he's, he fights for the downtrodden. Neville's his boy, you know? He, uh, he's a good guy, even though he sometimes gets portrayed as a bad guy and had his struggles in this book. And so, uh, yeah, I, I agree. It's almost as if even the generations are attempting to um, get the ideal pattern better. And I like also what you say about the mercurial or mercutio-like aspect mm -hmm. of, um, of Sirius on his motorcycle the loner who you can never quite get right i wonder to what extent he's like a commentary on the romantic ideal as a failed or a failing or a youthful worldview um one that uh cannot survive the actual travails of life and to what extent that'll be symbolically uh played out with uh sirius's fate uh i'm really interested to consider I think um, there's a recklessness in Sirius yeah. that, like like Mercutio, um, that uh, looks like boldness, looks like uh, a resistance to the rules, disobedience, um, kind of the uh, 
the, it, it's, it's flashy and appealing, but um, I don't know. Uh, it may not be wise. Um, and just to kind of go along with the idea that Harry is sort of improving upon the previous iterations. I love that word, by the way, iteration. But, um, you know, James did save um, Snape from a terrible fate, right, um, in the Shrieking sh Shack or near it. And he didn't do it, though, because he realized, um, or because, because of some moral pull. He did it because he, you know, got cold feet at the last minute or was afraid of getting caught or whatever. Um, I, think, I think that's part of why Snape is so, so full of hatred that um, he's indignant that like this guy's motivations weren't as rosy as everybody thinks they were. He didn't save me. He like saved himself from getting in trouble. Um, and I don't think the same could be said about Harry's decision to save Peter Pettigrew. And at the end, when Dumbledore tells him that uh, Pettigrew owes his life to him and that you sent Voldemort a deputy who's in your debt, that it, that it's to save a wizard's life creates a certain bond. And um, that that is, this is magic at its deepest, its most impenetrable. Um, and then he said, I knew your father very well, both at Hogwarts and later. He would have saved Pettigrew too. I'm sure of it. Like, I'm not sure of that, A, um, based on what we know thus far. Um, and we know that Dumbledore has, like, not told Harry everything. So I, I sort of wonder, like, why does Dumbledore paint um, a rosier picture for Harry than, than is accurate? And, like, is that, like, a, a Dumbledore understanding what Harry needs developmentally? I think that might have something to do with it, that maybe at a young age he really can't manage the thought. Um, that his father was somehow um, moderately to severely imperfect. <laughs> um, but that's, that's brilliant. I think that's a brilliant idea I, I, that developmentally he's allowing the ideal of the father to encourage Harry until he can differentiate it. I, th I, think, I, that that's a, I think that's a really big part of it because especially with the absence of the father in his real life, you know, yeah. the absence of, and the presence of other father, father-like figures, but the absence of the father, it, um, I think if you present it, and then just to pair with your idea, uh, Alex, about Harry becoming the father, or becoming what he imagines his father was, and, and it's funny that, not funny, I guess it's interesting that that makes him conjure the most powerful Patronus he's ever conjured. It's like not even really a thought that he, or a memory that he recalls, but it's actually something much more um, subconscious or existential even that makes him able to conjure this massive Patronus that casts away, you know, dozens of Dementors when he, he really hasn't demonstrated the ability to do that with the memories that he has on his own. And I guess I, I thought that about Dumbledore for a while that like, why would, why do you not tell him everything? On the other hand, he's 13. Does he deserve or should he know everything? Isn't there something to be said for protecting Harry from maybe the unvarnished truth so that he can 
um, I don't know, grow up to know enough of himself to know, to be able to, to, to be able to see that what he knows of his father is varnished and not complete, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, another question I would like to append to that for, for both of you and Wes too is uh, to what extent, sorry, I didn't that addendum. I'm losing my dang question. Um, to what extent, um, oh no, it'll come back to me. I'm sorry, Wes or, or Sarah, you can just go on. I just uh, forgot my dang question. Dude, uh, I, I really like the way that Dumbledore um, tells them what they need to do without telling them what they need to do, you know? Uh, yeah. With, with uh, his very brief uh, instruction, which is enough for Hermione to like understand in the flash part of it. And then Harry picks up the other part, which is saving Buckbeak and how that's like the key to everything as well. Um, but, but I love how neither of them, nowhere in Dumbledore's instructions is anything said about the um, Dementors per se and like Harry saving his own life, but that that is like also totally embedded in the kind of person Harry is, that he's going to go and mm -hmm. see like that guy who cast the Patronus and saved my life. Like I, I have to know um, if it's my dad, if he's still alive or some, you know, emanation of him is still walking the grounds here. Um, and what I love is that in a way it's like kind of impossible to say whether Dumbledore knows that or not, or just like that's the kind of world that this is. Um, and Dumbledore is like perfectly willing to accept. And I think that's kind of what he's saying about the deepest levels of magic, right? Like this is something mm -hmm. which is, and sorry. Uh, it's that that's basically, you know, not something he needs to understand, but just that, um, that that's, that's the world that they're in and, and he is able to, uh, let it sort of run its course. Then well, I, the, the last thing that goes with that though, is the, um, is the prophecy, which Harry sort of like yeah. accidentally remembers to tell him. And he sort of like treats it very lightly there. So I, I didn't know what you guys made of that. I guess, so if Harry, here's where I get super confused. If Harry hadn't acted upon his own curiosity, he would have died, right? Because it was his Patronus on the side of the lake that saved both him and Sirius on the other side in like round, in like, Time 1.0, I guess. So that's where I get kind of confused. Um, well, I think and would, is, yeah. is Dumbledore really willing, really willing to risk that? Or did he just sort of, does he know Harry so well that he knows that Harry won't be able to resist the temptation to find his father, find the person that he thinks is his father, and that Harry, I mean, Dumbledore must know Hermione well enough to know that she'll be able to keep Harry from, um, like, making themselves known by going after Peter Pettigrew. Like, that Harry's, Harry's desire for vengeance 
is um, is perhaps only tempered by his or only trumped by his desire to to know his father. Like I guess a part of me sort of wonders if he just knew Harry so well to know that Harry would then go do that. I that's an extraordinary show of faith um, in a kid. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I would say, at least to the first part of what you just said, that what Harry seems to learn and become capable of doing and casting that Patronus is how to embody the archetype of the father. He gets that energy from uh, providing the safety net necessary to those who need it, um, uh, rather than in sort of his pre-sort of bar mitzvah, pre-initiation into Patronus ways, uh, waiting for the provision of the father right? Waiting for Sirius to send him a fireball, waiting for a solution to come for, uh, to him. But now, now what he seems to have learned out in the woods, and I, I do think the end of this sort of has uh, elements of sort of like a shamanic initiation ritual or a, a coming to adulthood sort of ritual, is that what Harry has to do is expel the demons of his past in order to embody the father or the hero in the present. And that, and so it is, it is the very, it is the moment itself that requires that he live up to it, that produces the power in him that's necessary to extinguish the Dementors. Um, it's like he rises up and he learns the ultimate lesson in that moment. Uh, not just what it was to be his father, but what it is to be the ideal of a father to provide for those who, you know, to be like Mufasa and provide the world of light, that which the Patronus covers against the darkness, the Dementors, the hyenas. Right, but what I think what I was suggesting is, does Dumbledore know that Harry is capable of doing that? I, yeah, yeah, yeah. When yeah. The, yeah, you know, like that is, I, I'm in the throes of planning my winter trimester and one of our units is supposed to be an ethics unit and it's a really interesting sounding unit, but my freshmen were a, a nightmare today in class. And honestly, I don't trust them and they're 14 to have like serious conversations about ethics, much less go, you know, assume the position of, or assume the role of a father. <laughs> like, I, <laughs> I, I, do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I guess I'm sort of in awe of what of on the one hand what he doesn't tell harry and on the other hand what he believes harry can do uh and i think the easy answer is that dumbledore is like all seeing and all knowing and knows like past present and future and and like knew that this was all going to work out but i i guess i'm not satisfied with that i don't think there's evidence to suggest he did know that but maybe there is and i just well that makes he does sort of like murk here and there but I, I I don't know like I guess that's I'm just really impressed that his faith in Harry's ability in the second the second round using the time turner that Harry was able to like do the thing that he needed to do I don't know yeah I see I think the way that it seems to work is that Dumbledore has seen Harry produce the Patronus um, at least once before back at the, uh, the Quidditch match. Um, 
mm. even though it wasn't against a, a real Dementor, as it turns out, right? It was just against Malfoy. But so you know, he knows it from there. But he also like by the time that he's telling them that if only they had more time, you know, he's already again observed the um, the bizarre coincidence that the powerful Patronus appeared and saved their life. Um, and I, I take it that he sort of has deduced that it must be Harry himself who did it. And he's put that together with the fact Hermione's got the, uh, the time turner. And so it's like QED, right? For, for them to go back and, and uh, create this, this bizarre, but like inevitable sort of um, uh, conclusion. Uh, to got the, it. Yeah, it's like, so it's like the way that that's set up though, you know, hundreds of pages earlier by having Hermione get the time turner and like start Harry's Patronus lessons, you know, all of that stuff remains rather um, fortunate, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and I was wondering to what extent the the end here embodies sort of a typical young adult novel motif and that there's a sort of overinflation of the both part of the protagonist as well as the skills and abilities of the protagonist and how that would connect to sort of our our idea that Harry has been sort of inflated throughout this text and is focused on things like his Quidditch victories at the expense of his friendship with Hagrid uh, via his inability or his unwillingness or his just not making time to like uh, help out with the Buckbeak trial and his sort of misprioritizing of things and not prioritizing his relationship with Hermione, though of course she got that very thoughtful gift for him in the beginning. And now we actually see how close he has to get with Hermione at the end of this book and earns him, you know, earns them a spot on the cover together in the American version. Um, that's not Ginny, you know. And uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I wondered whether y'all thought that um, the end here was also sort of in line with that idea that the young adult sort of hero has powers, like you were saying, Sarah, far beyond what a normal 13 or 14 year old would do, like much braver, uh, you know, truly an ideal. And, uh, you know, even braver in terms of taking risks and disobeying things, right? Like uh, going mm -hmm. to Hogsmeade could be dangerous in some way. And, you know, I can't imagine well, you know, it depends, I suppose, but, you know, there are plenty of young people who would not have the courage to try that sort of thing. They'd be too afraid. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's interesting to what extent he, he, he is so much more or is supposed to stand above, even though in a way it's like he's like an imperfect representation himself. It's, it, it's as if, I don't know, uh, if I were going to say something interesting, it's as if it's a you know, a modern figure of the divine. And the uh, rather than just having an imperfect God as in a suffering God on a cross, it's sort of a, a young, scarred boy. Um, and I don't know, a lot of people seem to have read this. And I, I wonder if it's because in some way... I, I, I mean, oh, I think that's... Yeah, that, that, I, you trailed off there, but I wasn't sure if... I wasn't just... I just wasn't hearing you, but... Uh, if that if that's the case, um, then again, Dumbledore is like our image for what faith looks like, or something like that. And that's yeah. mm -hmm. interesting because he is like a very high bar um, to to try to 
be like um and I, I don't know if it's like even remotely realistic you know as as unrealistic as harry potter is like dumbledore is 10 times as unrealistic uh so so what what do you do with that i guess is part of what i would ask um aside from like enjoying the story and and you know finding uh, entertainment in it uh why well, yeah, i would definitely that? strive towards it rather than trying to kill it that would be mm -hmm. that would be my my attempt i mean be measured by it it's like that's the game if dumbledore is so fantastically amazing then he's a representation sort of of the dominance hierarchy and like measure measure yourself out against the great ones of the past and that's the game and or you can mm -hmm. just resent the game like you know snape or voldemort and try and go outside it but there's no other game you know uh, so you know i i take pleasure in the fact that there is someone like a dumbledore represented in this text someone to sort of keep us honest and teach us the value of honesty but also the value of skill and of uh, doing the right thing and the, at the right time and uh, also someone who's capable of bringing things together for you when you say something it often sparks uh, a connection in his mind that he then shares with you in a very honest way and so he sort of emulate or he embodies thought for you so that you can imitate his ability to think things through um, and so he's he's you know like the eternal teacher and like super father in that way that, and that he is the father of all the children who come to Hogwarts, right? He helps to mold them. And so everybody loves Dumbledore. Um, but that's a good thing to strive towards, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think what you said, Alex, a while back about Harry being sort of this uncommon child. I think on the other hand, like, there is something about kids that has the capacity to like be both. I mean, obviously biologically they are the legacy of their parents, but, but also to like do different or do better um, than what their parent or like perfect, I, I suppose. Yes. What their parents were. And that, I mean, that's right. That's part of the American dream, right? It's one, one element that is, seems to be fading more and more away that people think you know, people want to give their children better than they themselves had. And it's something that people see polls suggest people think is less and less possible. But I think one of the things that's interesting about Harry is that he's able to be kind of like a confluence of father that he had like biological father, but also a lot of the father figures. Um, and I think it explains for me at least a little bit as to why Snape resents him so much that Harry gets to do over certain things um, and maybe, maybe do better than his dad did, but Snape doesn't get to undo or do better or do again. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't get a redo. He's stuck in high school <laughs> and maybe any redo that he gets is, um, he doesn't get credit for, uh, he doesn't get, uh, anything that he, anything that he makes better. He's, he's not, for some reason, he either chooses not to, he chooses, he either abdicates the opportunity or he doesn't get public 
recognition for it. So um, it's almost like he, uh, you know, he, I can, I, I can understand why that makes him resentful. Let's put it that way. Um, he doesn't have kids either. I think that that's, and any, any quote unquote, yeah. any, any kids that he's in charge of, they get vested by, by Harry all the time, right? Like, <laughs> so it's almost as though the iterations are happening, but he continues to lose. Um, That's right. And then you think about how important, you know, the habits one builds as a young person are because he's essentially the expression of the habits and the results of those habits in real time now that sort of perpetual resentment at that perpetual loss of that which was most valuable to him it it, again even though there's a recurrence of time it, it seems to indicate to me the importance of the present and the now and of performing your best in the now absolutely because it produces the future and in the future, you know, you can be the hero or you can be the Snape, you know, and even if Snape comes to good things eventually, it's not an ideal path. And it, it, it's sort of a, a reverberation or a reiteration after reiteration of, you know, what he was already becoming in high school. And it, I, I don't know, it, it just, it seems, you know, moments can be pivotal in life and you never know when they're going to come upon you and you should, you know, do your best to get the best out of pivotal moments. And especially the ones you can mm-hmm. connect to. Uh, don't, I feel like that's something I didn't get when I was young. Instead of sort of apathetically approaching moments and trying to take what's meaningful from them, approach every moment as if it's meaningful. And, and you know, you can actually make it more so, I think. And well, you know, Maybe that's the difference between being at Hogwarts and being at the Dursleys um, or something like that. Well, we're at the end of this text now. What do y'all want to conclude with? Um, do you think we could maybe just at least note that um, the book begins and ends with owl posts and like, um the first owl post is from Hedwig this like stunningly right it's from Ed Hedwig I'm not crazy um and it brings him Chris Grimson is brings him his birthday present I think um so. and that uh it's like a recognition of of you know who he is in relation which are which are a reflection of who he is in relation to in relationship to his friends but Hedwig is like the alpha owl, right? She's stunningly beautiful and a little bit self-involved and like, (laughs) um, she's just a beautiful, a beautiful owl, but, um, the owl that happens there upon them and the, uh, Hogwarts Express is like, needless to say, not an alpha owl is like a a beta slash gamma slash owl in need of a lot of love. Um, so perfect for Ron. <laughs> so perfect for Ron, right? Kind of broken, right? But like good enough. Um, and I just, I think it's interesting that it begins and ends with outposts. And then the second chapter is about Aunt Marge um, and Aunt Marge blowing up, right? And like becoming larger than life. And, and the, the second to last chapter is about Hermione's 
secret and like the way in which that affected her physically. Um, and she kind of does the exact opposite, right? Which is like make herself not known to other people while she's learning all of these things. And um, I just think like once I was, I'm, I'm really intrigued by what we've been talking about in the last few pods about childhood and adulthood and given that they're like 13 on the precipice of 14 they're what in the United States we would call like eighth graders going into ninth grade um and that the books are about to get increasingly more dense and difficult complex um dark it just it strikes me as interesting that like the owl post at the end is not a not a beautiful owl post I mean it brings a lovely note um but it's a risky note and the owl itself is like kind of sketchy. And um, it seems like there's a lot on the horizon that is unfinished or ambiguous or ominous. And that's part of what becoming a teenager is that like uh, things get broken and maybe they don't get put back together as well as they once were, or, you realize that something isn't as pretty or perfect or simple as it seemed when you didn't really have any cause to question it. Right. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I think that that's like the structure is, is noticeable. And then asking why that structural decision now is important to me. It's like the shiny veneer of the Disney world. Perfect father or perfect world which you have been provided as a child is beginning to fade away as you develop a more distinguishing consciousness more capable of seeing you know the cracks in the image and the the interplay between the ideal and that which is real and it's as if that capacity is building in this young adolescent you know mind and so the world in which he inhabits this hogwarts is changing becoming more complex and the dark side is becoming more better defined as well um mm -hmm. and also uh, his connection to it um because the darkness in the world is to some extent a reflection of the darkness in you that's the idea of dante when he has his characters you know criticize florence for being a den of all vices like malice and avarice well those don't come from the dogs or the buildings those, you know, those terrible sins come from humans. And Plato says the same thing about the city. Uh, people call it an analogy, but I think it's just correct <laughs> that uh, the city is like a large version of a human soul. It's like, well, yeah, uh, the decisions of a city are made by the people within the city. So, yes, they're human decisions. And, um, and so we're starting to get a more differentiated idea of what a human is, it seems like as well as these books mm -hmm. are complex. And I, I, I'm interested too, Wes, because I really like this book because of that, that idea of, you know, having the Godfather take you away to somewhere better, but dang, it doesn't quite happen. Um, I really like the fourth book a lot too. I'm really looking forward to, uh, well, I, the first four or so chapters at least, because like you said about uh, us always, uh, taking it so long to get to Hogwarts in each book. It's 171 pages until Hogwarts in this one. That's, that's crazy. That's, yeah, I remember it being like uh, practically the length of one of the previous books, you know, before you even get mm -hmm. to Hogwarts. 
so how much should we read for next time? Um, how, how, how drastically do you guys want to um, plunge into the Goblet of Fire here? I really want to get back to the burrow, at least. I want to I wanna get to five, if possible. It's only 50 pages, and it gets us safely into a wizarding sanctuary, which I think is a good right. safe point here. Um, right on. Yeah, yeah. And something, something I just want to ask as a question, or as a bookmark for next time, is Lord Voldemort? I never noticed this. He calls Pettigrew Wormtail. A, how's he know that name? B, is that some cruel inversion of the friendship that, uh, like, does he know that that's what his friends called Pettigrew? And now he calls him Wormtail to remind him of the fact that he's a traitor every time he refers to him. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to next time. Yeah, it's, well, like, um, that's another thing that's from the beginning of the book here. You have that picture of Ron with his family and Scabbers on his shoulder or whatever, right? And that's that's how Sirius uh, sort of figured it out also, that, that Pettigrew is still out there and that he had this mission that he had to, you know, go and um, uh, right the wrong, right? So that um, that that recurring, that use of recurring characters, like, that's, that's crucial to this story. Um, and the way that uh, Voldemort plays upon that uh, is, yeah, very unsettling, um, but also totally fitting, it seems to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, y'all, until this next Thanksgiving week, yes? So wait, are we going to do chapters one through four or chapters one through five? Uh, one through four, two, five. Okay, cool. All right. Got it. All Looking right. Forward to it. See you guys. See y'all. Take it easy.